Chapter Fourteen, Part Two of The Teeth of the Tiger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Teeth of the Tiger by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter Fourteen: The Hater. Don Luis spoke with increasing force, with the ardor that springs from conviction, and his logical and closely argued speech seemed to conjure up the actual truth. "There's your man, Monsieur le Préfet," he repeated. "There's your scoundrel." and the situation in which he found himself was such the fear inspired by inspector verot's possible revelations was such that before putting into execution the horrible deed which he had planned he came to the police office to make sure that his victim was no longer alive and had not been able to denounce him you remember the scene monsieur le prefet the fellow's agitation and fright to-morrow evening he said yes it was for the morrow that he asked for your help because he knew that everything would be over that same evening and that next day the police would be confronted with a murder with the two culprits against whom he himself had heaped up the charges with marie fauville whom he had so to speak accused in advance that was why sergeant mazeroux's visit and mine to his house at nine o'clock in the evening embarrassed him so obviously who were these intruders would they not succeed in shattering his plan reflection reassured him even as we by our insistence compelled him to give way after all what did he care asked perenna his measures were so well taken that no amount of watching could destroy them or even make the watchers aware of them what was to happen would happen in our presence and unknown to us death summoned by him would do its work and the comedy the tragedy rather ran its course madame fauville whom he was sending to the opera came to say good-night then his servant brought him something to eat including a dish of apples then followed a fit of rage the agony of the man who is about to die and who fears death and a whole scene of deceit in which he showed us his safe and the drab-cloth diary which was supposed to contain the story of the plot that ended matters mazeroux and i retired to the hall passage closing the door after us and m fauville remained alone and free to act nothing now could prevent the fulfilment of his wishes at eleven o'clock in the evening madame fauville to whom no doubt in the course of the day imitating sauverand's handwriting he had sent a letter one of those letters which are always torn up at once in which sauverand entreated the poor woman to grant him an interview at the ranelagh madame fauville would leave the opera and before going to madame dersinger's party would spend an hour not far from the house on the other hand sauverand would be performing his usual wednesday pilgrimage less than half a mile away in the opposite direction during this time the crime would be committed both of them would come under the notice of the police either by m fauville's allusions or by the incident at the cafe du pont neuf both of them moreover would be incapable either of providing an alibi or of explaining their presence so near the house were not both of them bound to be accused and convicted of the crime in the most unlikely event that some chance should protect them there was an undeniable proof lying ready to hand in the shape of the apple containing the very marks of madame fauville's teeth and then a few weeks later the last and decisive trick the mysterious arrival at intervals of ten days of the letters denouncing the pair so everything was settled the smallest details were foreseen with infernal clearness you remember monsieur le prefet that turquoise which dropped out of my ring and was found in the safe there were only four persons who could have seen it and picked it up monsieur fauville was one of them well he was just the one whom we all accepted and yet it was he who, to cast suspicion upon me, and to forestall an interference which he felt would be dangerous, seized the opportunity and placed the turquoise in the safe. This time the work was completed. Fate was about to be fulfilled. Between the hater and his victims there was but the distance of one act. The act was performed. M. Fauville died. Don Luis ceased. His words were followed by a long silence, and he felt certain that the extraordinary story which he had just finished telling met with the absolute approval of his hearers. 
They did not discuss, they believed. And yet it was the most incredible truth that he was asking them to believe. M. de Malion asked one last question. You were in that passage with Sergeant Mazeroux. There were detectives outside the house. Admitting that M. Fauville knew that he was to be killed that night, and at that very hour of the night, who can have killed him, and who can have killed his son? There was no one within these four walls. There was M. Fauville. A sudden clamor of protests arose. The veil was promptly torn, and the spectacle revealed by Don Luis provoked, in addition to horror, an unforeseen outburst of incredulity, and a sort of revolt against the too kindly attention which had been accorded to those explanations. The prefect of police expressed the general feeling by exclaiming, "'Enough of words! Enough of theories! However logical they may seem, they lead to absurd conclusions!' "'Absurd in appearance, Monsieur le Préfet, but how do we know that M. Fauville's unheard-of conduct is not explained by very natural reasons? Of course no one dies with a light heart for the mere pleasure of revenge. But how do we know that M. Fauville, whose extreme emaciation and pallor you must have noted as I did, was not stricken by some mortal illness, and that knowing himself doomed—' "'I repeat, enough of words!' cried the Prefect. "'You go only by suppositions. What I want is proofs, a proof, only one, and we are still waiting for it.' Here it is, Monsieur le Préfet. Eh, what's that you say? Monsieur le Préfet, when I removed the chandelier from the plaster that supported it, I found, outside the upper surface of the metal box, a sealed envelope. As the chandelier was placed under the attic occupied by Monsieur Fauville's son, it is evident that Monsieur Fauville was able, by lifting the boards of the floor in his son's room, to reach the top of the machine which he had contrived. This was how, during that last night, he placed this sealed envelope in position, after writing on it the date of the murder, 31 March, 11 p.m., and his signature, Hippolyte Fauville. M. de Malion opened the envelope with an eager hand. His first glance at the pages of writing which it contained made him give a start. "'Oh, the villain! The villain!' he said. "'How is it possible for such a monster to exist? What a loathsome brute!' In a jerky voice, which became almost inaudible at times, owing to his amazement, he read, "'The end is reached. My hour is striking. Put to sleep by me. Edmund is dead without having been roused from his unconsciousness by the fire of the poison. My own death agony is beginning. I am suffering all the tortures of hell. My hand can hardly write these last lines. I suffer how I suffer, and yet my happiness is unspeakable.' This happiness dates back to my visit to London with Edmund four months ago. Until then I was dragging on the most hideous existence, hiding my hatred of the woman who detested me, and who loved another, broken down in health, feeling myself already eaten up with an unrelenting disease, and seeing my son grow daily more weak and languid. In the afternoon I consulted a great physician, and I no longer had the least doubt left. The malady that was eating into me was cancer, and I knew besides that, like myself, my son Edmund was on the road to the grave, incurably stricken with consumption. That same evening I conceived the magnificent idea of revenge, and such a revenge, the most dreadful accusations made against a man and a woman in love with each other. Prison, the assizes, penal servitude— the scaffold, and no assistance possible, not a struggle, not a hope, accumulated proofs, proofs so formidable as to make the innocent themselves doubt their own innocence, and remain hopelessly and helplessly dumb. What a revenge! 
and what a punishment to be innocent and to struggle vainly against the very facts that accuse you, the very certainty that proclaims you guilty. And I prepared everything with a glad heart. Each happy thought, each invention made me shout with laughter. Lord, how merry I was! You would think that cancer hurts not a bit of it. How can you suffer physical pain when your soul is quivering with delight? Do you think I feel the hideous burning of the poison at this moment? I am happy. The death which I have inflicted on myself is the beginning of their torment. Then why live and wait for a natural death which to them would mean the beginning of their happiness? And as Edmund had to die, why not save him a lingering illness and give him a death which would double the crime of Marie and Sauvera? The end is coming. I had to break off. The pain was too much for me. Now to pull myself together. How silent everything is. Outside the house and in the house are emissaries of the police watching over my crime. At no great distance, Marie, in obedience to my letter, is hurrying to the trysting place where her beloved will not come, and the beloved is roaming under the windows where his darling will not appear. Oh, the dear little puppets whose string I pull! Dance, jump, skip! Lord, what fun they are! A rope round your neck, sir, and, madam, a rope round yours. Was it not you, sir, who poisoned Inspector Verreaux this morning and followed him to the Café du Pont Neuf with your grand ebony walking-stick? Why, of course it was— and at night the pretty lady poisons me and poisons her stepson. Prove it? Well, what about this apple, madame, this apple, which you did not bite into, and which all the same will be found to bear the marks of your teeth? What fun! Dance, jump, skip! And the letters, the trick of my letters to the late lamented Langenot, that was my crowning triumph. Oh, the joy of it, when I invented and constructed my little mechanical toy! Wasn't it nicely thought out? Isn't it wonderfully neat and accurate? On the appointed day, click the first letter, and ten days after, click the second letter. Come, there's no hope for you, my poor friends. You're nicely done for. Dance, jump, skip. And what amuses me for I am laughing now, is to think that nobody will know what to make of it. Marie and Sauvrain guilty, of that there is not the least doubt, but outside that absolute mystery, nobody will know, nor ever will know anything. In a few weeks' time, when the two criminals are irrevocably doomed, when the letters are in the hands of the police on the 25th, or rather at three o'clock on the morning of the 26th of May, an explosion will destroy every trace of my work. The bomb is in its place. A movement entirely independent of the chandelier will explode it at the hour aforesaid. I have just laid beside it the drab-cloth manuscript book in which I pretended that I wrote my diary, the files containing the poison, the needles which I used, an ebony walking-stick, two letters from Inspector Verreaux, in short, anything that might save the culprits. Then how can anyone know? 
No, nobody will know, nor ever will know anything, unless, unless some miracle happens, unless the bomb leaves the wall standing and the ceiling intact, unless by some marvel of intelligence and intuition a man of genius, unraveling the threads which I have tangled, should penetrate to the very heart of the riddle and succeed, after a search lasting for months and months, in discovering this final letter. It is for this man that I write, well knowing that he cannot exist. But after all, what do I care? Marie and Sauvran will be at the bottom of the abyss by then, dead, no doubt, or in any case, separated for ever, and I risk nothing by leaving this evidence of my hatred in the hands of chance. There, that's finished. I have only to sign. My hand shakes more and more. The sweat is pouring from my forehead in great drops. I am suffering the tortures of the damned, and I am divinely happy. Ah, my friends, you were waiting for my death. You, Marie, imprudently let me read in your eyes, which watched me stealthily, all your delight at seeing me so ill, and you were both of you so sure of the future that you had the courage to wait patiently for my death. Well, here it is, my death. Here it is, and there are you, united above my grave, linked together with the handcuffs. Marie, be the wife of my friend Sauvran. Sauvran, I bestow my spouse upon you be joined together in holy matrimony. Bless you, my children. The examining magistrate will draw up the contract, and the executioner will read the marriage service. Oh, the delight of it! I suffer agonies, but oh, the delight! What a fine thing is hatred, when it makes death a joy! I am happy in dying. Marie is in prison. Sauvran is weeping in the condemned man's cell. The door opens. Oh, horror, the men in black, they walk up to the bed. Gaston Sauvran, your appeal is rejected. Courage, be a man. Oh, the cold, dark morning, the scaffold. It's your turn, Marie, your turn. Would you survive your lover? Sauvran is dead. It's your turn. See, here's a rope for you. Or would you rather have poison? Die, will you, you hussy! Die with your veins on fire, as I am doing, I who hate you, hate you, hate you. Monsieur de Malion ceased amid the silent astonishment of all those present. He had great difficulty in reading the concluding lines, the writing having become almost wholly shapeless and illegible. He said in a low voice as he stared at the paper, Hippolyte Fauville. The signature is there. The scoundrel found a last remnant of strength to sign his name clearly. He feared that a doubt might be entertained of his villainy, and indeed how could any one have suspected it? And looking at Don Luis, he added, It needed, to solve the mystery, a really exceptional power of insight and gifts to which we must all do homage, to which I do homage. All the explanations which that madman gave have been anticipated in the most accurate and bewildering fashion. Don Luis bowed, and without replying to the praise bestowed upon him, said, "'You are right, Monsieur le Préfet. He was a madman, and one of the most dangerous kind, the lucid madman who pursues an idea from which nothing will make him turn aside. He pursued it with superhuman tenacity, and with all the resources of his fastidious mind, enslaved by the laws of mechanics.' Another would have killed his victims frankly and brutally. 
he set his wits to work to kill at a long date, like an experimenter who leaves to time the duty of proving the excellence of his invention. And he succeeded only too well, because the police fell into the trap, and because Madame Fauville is perhaps going to die. M. de Malion made a gesture of decision. The whole business, in fact, was past history, on which the police proceedings would throw the necessary light. One fact alone was of importance to the present, the saving of Marie Fauville's life. "'It's true,' he said. "'We have not a minute to lose. Madame Fauville must be told without delay. At the same time, I will send for the examining magistrate, and the case against her is sure to be dismissed at once.' He swiftly gave orders for continuing the investigations and verifying Don Luis's theories. Then, turning to Perena, "'Come, monsieur,' he said, "'it is right that Madame Fauville should thank her rescuer. Mazuru, you come too.' The meeting was over, that meeting in the course of which Don Luis had given the most striking proofs of his genius. Waging war, so to speak, upon the powers beyond the grave, he had forced the dead man to reveal his secret. He disclosed, as though he had been present throughout, the hateful vengeance conceived in the darkness, and carried out in the tomb. M. de Malion showed all his admiration by his silence, and by certain movements of his head and Perena took a keen enjoyment in the strange fact that he, who was being hunted down by the police a few hours ago, should now be sitting in a motor-car beside the head of that same force. Nothing threw into greater relief the masterly manner in which he had conducted the business, and the importance which the police attached to the results obtained. The value of his collaboration was such that they were willing to forget the incidents of the last two days. The grudge which Weber bore him was now of no avail against Don Luis Perena. M. de Malion, meanwhile, began briefly to review the new solutions, and he concluded by still discussing certain points. Yes, that's it. There is not the least shadow of a doubt. We agree. It's that and nothing else. Still, one or two things remain obscure. First of all, the mark of the teeth. This, notwithstanding the husband's admission, is a fact which we cannot neglect. I believe that the explanation is a very simple one, Monsieur le Préfet. I will give it to you as soon as I am able to support it with the necessary proofs. Very well. But another question. How is it that Weber, yesterday morning, found that sheet of paper relating to the explosion in Mademoiselle Levasseur's room? And how was it, added Don Luis, laughing, that I found there the list of the five dates corresponding with the delivery of the letters? So you are of my opinion, said M. de Malion. The part played by Mademoiselle Levasseur is at least suspicious. I believe that everything will be cleared up, Monsieur le Préfet, and that you need now only question Madame Fauville and Gaston Sauverin in order to dispel these last obscurities and remove all suspicion from Mademoiselle Levasseur. And then, insisted Monsieur de Malion, there is one more fact that strikes me as odd. Hippolyte Fauville does not once mention the Mornington inheritance in his confession. Why? Did he not know of it? Are we to suppose that there is no connection, beyond a mere casual coincidence, between the series of crimes and that bequest? There I am entirely of your opinion, Monsieur le Préfet. Hippolyte Fauville's silence as to that bequest perplexes me a little, I confess. But all the same I look upon it as comparatively unimportant. The main thing is Fauville's guilt and the prisoner's innocence. Don Luis's delight was pure and unbounded. From his point of view the sinister tragedy was at an end with the discovery of the confession written by Hippolyte Fauville. Anything not explained in those lines would be explained by the details to be supplied by Madame Fauville, Florence Levasseur, and Gaston Sauverin. He himself had lost all interest in the matter. The car drew up at Saint-Lazare, the wretched, sordid old prison which is still waiting to be pulled down. The prefect jumped out. The door was opened at once. "'Is the prison governor there?' he asked. "'Quick, send for him. It's urgent.' Then, unable to wait, he at once hastened toward the corridors leading to the infirmary, and as he reached the first-floor landing, came up against the governor himself. "'Madame Fauville,' he said without waste of time, "'I want to see her.' 
but he stopped short when he saw the expression of consternation on the prison governor's face. "'Well, what is it?' he asked. "'What's the matter?' "'Why, haven't you heard, Monsieur le Préfet?' stammered the governor. "'I telephoned to the office, you know. "'Speak, what is it? "'Madame Fauville died this morning. "'She managed somehow to take poison.' M. Desmalions seized the governor by the arm and ran to the infirmary, followed by Perenna and Mazeroux. He saw Marie Fauville lying on a bed in one of the rooms. Her pale face and her shoulders were stained with brown patches, similar to those which had marked the bodies of Inspector Verreau, Hippolyte Fauville, and his son Edmund. Greatly upset, the prefect murmured, "'But the poison, where did it come from?' "'This file and syringe were found under her pillow, Monsieur le Préfet.' "'Under her pillow?' "'But how did they get there? How did they reach her? Who gave them to her?' "'We don't know yet, Monsieur le Préfet.' M. de Malion looked at Don Luis. So Hippolyte Fauville's suicide had not put an end to the series of crimes. His action had done more than aim at Marie's death by the hand of the law. It had now driven her to take poison. Was it possible? Was it admissible that the dead man's revenge should still continue in the same automatic and anonymous manner? Or rather— or rather was there not some other mysterious will which was secretly and as audaciously carrying on Hippolyte Fauville's diabolical work? Two days later came a fresh sensation. Gaston Sauverin was found dying in his cell. He had had the courage to strangle himself with his bedsheet. All efforts to restore him to life were vain. On the table near him lay a half-dozen newspaper cuttings which had been passed to him by an unknown hand. All of them told the news of Marie Fauville's death. End of chapter 14